Romans chapter 5, we did the first, um, first 11 verses already and looking at this passage of Scripture. And we are going to now look at um, the last half at verse uh, 12 down through verse number 21. And a, a lot of it is somewhat repetitive from verse 12 to verse 21. And the repetitiveness is the, the, the building of a case of, of what, what it is that Paul is trying to say. And, and he is saying it in, in different ways or just repeating himself in slightly different wording to, to cover all possible basis uh, of, um, of what somebody might try to argue uh, from a, a works standpoint and, uh, and an issue of man's problem with sin. And, uh, and so we've been looking in, in, here at, at chapter 5. We said that the, um, the key verses are verse 18 through 21. I'm not going to read those right now because we will be reading them in just a moment. But uh, to me, those would be the key verses because as you read verse 18 uh, through verse number 21, you actually get the very ending of the chapter gives you a, a very clear and precise understanding of really what Paul is trying to get across through the entire 21 verses. And or at least, should we say, that section of the letter he wrote. Uh, and, uh, and so we said the, the background theme as a whole uh, of this chapter would be about peace and hope. Uh, the peace that is given through salvation and the hope that it produces. We looked at that in greater detail last week. And, and so if you need to, you can go back on the archives there um, that the church has and listen to that if you didn't, weren't able to be here for that part. But um, I will give you just a simple rundown. We said that uh, verse 1 through verse number 11 um, deals with, as a whole, peace that is found through faith. So peace through faith. And it's the peace with God in verse number 1 it is the peace uh, in place of guilt, the peace uh, to walk in fellowship, peace of assurance for eternity. It is having a peace about uh, my, my sin issue, my walk with God, and, and my eternity after this life. Having peace with God concerning those very specific issues. Then also, um, it is peace that brings us unto hope. Verse 2 through 5 talked about that. It's a hope accessed by faith a hope increased through the process. And we, we, that was the fun one. Uh, we dealt with, you know, everybody says, don't, don't pray for patience. Don't pray for patience. Why? Because the Bible says that what worketh patience? Tribulation worketh patience. And, uh, and we, we often come from a standpoint of, we looked at it last week, we come from a standpoint of it's a horrible thing. Don't ask for patience because you're going to get tribulation. But if you actually read what is said, the Bible actually says, I will read this, and not only so, but we glory or we are thankful for, we are appreciative of glorying in tribulations also. <laughs> that sounds really dumb. Why would we be happy for tribulation? Why would we... Uh, be excited. Why, why would we be thankful for tribulation? Because knowing that tribulation worketh patience. See, we always come from the angle of 
Fear, fear, ask him for patience. Don't ask for patience because God will give you tribulation. We don't want that. Paul's saying, actually, with a right heart attitude, I'm okay with the Lord taking me through some things. Not that I want it, not that I really enjoy it, but I know that the tribulation I face teaches me patience. And that patience brings about some experience, and experience produces a final understanding of hope. How do I get hope? Through a process. I get hope through the process of God putting me through tribulation so I can learn patience, godly patience, which gives me great experience in knowing who God is and what he can do in me and through me, which just builds my hope in him over and over again. So we know that hope is accessed by faith and hope is increased through that process. And we also looked at how hope secured is secured through God's love in verse number five. I'm not going to repeat all that, but um, that process I thought was worth repeating again. Then we, we, the last thing we looked at was verse six through verse number 11 um, deals with hope unto assurance. So we have peace with God, peace unto hope, and hope unto assurance. Uh, that is assurance, and it deals with verse number six, man's state and God's timing. Verse seven was the likelihood of one person being willing to die for another. Verse number eight is the conditions surrounding Christ's death or his sacrifice in that while we were yet sinners. Most people won't even die for an innocent man who's a good guy, but Christ died for sinners. And then we look and see the extent of forgiveness through Christ justified by his blood, reconciled to God, and saved from wrath. With the ending in verse number 11, we stopped with the additional blessing that comes through all of this. The peace through faith brings about the additional blessing of having joy. Real, true, godly joy. I didn't say happiness. Happiness, in man's terms, is Whenever things are going great and I can smile and I'm all happy because everything's wonderful and knows no problems. Well, happiness and joy are actually two different things. Because I can be in the midst of the storm and God can give me joy. I may not be happy about it, but God can give me joy. I don't have to have perfect surroundings and I don't have to have perfect conditions and I don't have to have perfect people all around me to have joy. Though if I'm focused on happiness, then it, happiness oftentimes is labeled by conditions of whether or not I can be happy with it. So there's a, the, the additional blessing of what we receive from Christ dealing with salvation and that peace that comes through faith in Christ can give the additional blessing in verse number 11, the joy that we have through our Lord Jesus Christ. By, and it ends with, by whom we have now received the atonement, this free gift, this undeserved gift. Well, looking now at verse number 12, and um, we'll, go, we'll go through these last few verses uh, and, and look at what Paul finalizes in this breakdown uh, of being chapter five, this section that is broken down for us um, in Romans. So uh, the, the last several verses from verse 12 down to verse number 21 
are, um, I, I would put it this way, if you want to put it in a category or a title uh, for this area, this section of the, of the chapter, it'd be the contrasting parallels. All right, it kind of sounds like a, an oxymoron, <laughs> but the contrasting parallels. Typically, parallels are, are things that are kind of in line with each other and, and just, just kind of go in the same direction. But in this case, they're actually very much contrasting. Um, let's, let, here's the easiest way to put it. I-65. You have contrasting parallels on I-65. Matter of fact, any road, any road that has two ways, it's not a one-way road, it has contrasting parallels. Because you've got two, two sides that are, that are identical with each other, following each other, but yet they don't go the same direction. You get on, you, you get on the, uh, the southbound lane on I-65, you're heading that direction. You get on the northbound lane, I-65, and try to head that direction, you're going to have a lot of mad people. Because I-65 north heads that direction. But when you look at it from above, the roads are just exact parallel with each other. No matter how it goes, they stay parallel with each other. But they're in contrast to each other because they go different directions. Same thing is true with what Paul is showing here. Um, verse number 12 uh, through verse number 14 lays out the condemnation. Again, Paul reiterating the issue and the problem because of sin. It says, wherefore, we know Romans 5, 12, very, rather popular verse, if I can get the words out, rather popular verse, well known because of the Romans road, uh, given the gospel. But uh, it says, wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Verse number 13 says, for until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. I'll explain some of that here in just a minute. Verse number 14 says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. The figure of him that was to come is an automatic. He's looking at a contrast. You have Adam. Adam is the figure of him that was to come. Who is that? That is Christ, the contrasting parallel. And so you have Adam, who is the figure of him that is to come. But wherefore, as by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sin. This is the condemnation we see uh, through what Paul is teaching, that since Adam, all are guilty of sin. That is an automatic condemnation that we all face. It is a sentence on our lives instantly. We are born guilty. But it goes on, and in the next, next thing, uh, it talks about that this is a, the, the sentence or the guilt, and what comes because of that guilt is a universal fate without exception. Every single man, every single woman, Every boy and girl, now I, I, I'm not going to go into this deep. I do believe, uh, personally, there is a time frame in early age where, if you want to call it an, what they call an age of innocence, there's, there's a time frame when a, a child does not comprehend the, the aspect of what they are doing. Now, they know how to sin, and as a whole, they are as any other man, they have sinned over their life, yes, but 
the understanding of I am a sinner. And I am condemned without Christ. That understanding or that, that you might say that light bulb moment comes at, at different points in age. Um, there's a, it's a whole concept that, that I believe can be backed up in many ways, but at this time, it's not where we're going to tonight, so I'm not going to go into all of that. But uh, man is born a sinful, pers- a sinful creature by nature due to Adam's transgression. But our problem is, as a whole... When we know of, which the, the law, when it came, it's going to see that in a minute, the law magnified the problem. No one, when they understand who they are because of sin, they understand the nature within us, and they understand the guilt that comes because of sin, there is no innocence left when I know what sin is. When I know what I am because of it. And when I know what has been done, well, what, what will happen because of sin and what has been done to deal with it, when I'm aware of what sin is and that I'm a sinner, I am 100% without excuse beyond the fact that I was already born with a problem. And so there, there, there are levels at which, again, that, a lot of that can go real deep. A lot of that can be a, a, a real... Um, point of argument for some people. I'm not going to argue about it because if I'm wrong, God will just correct me when we get there. But as a whole, I believe boys and girls to the youngest age you possibly can, you should be teaching of what sin is. You should be teaching uh, of what, what man faces because of sin. And we should be teaching what Christ did for every single one of us. Why? Because I don't know when it is that there is going to click and they're going to understand what it is, but whatever, at every moment they can understand, they need to have the truth being told to them so they can understand and they can respond. <clears throat> and so that is an automatic. You don't, you don't wait until, some, some people believe you have to wait until they know they got to be a teenager before they really understand. Oh no, I know a lot of kids that are like, you know, four and five, they know. They prove they know, all right? So... When you get right down to it, it's dealing with the condemnation. Because of Adam, since, what he, since he chose what he did to rebel against God, we're all guilty, all men. Sin has been passed down to all men, for all have sinned. It is a universal fate, it is without exception. Then the uh, verse 15 uh, and 16 lays out the coverage. And I'm going to put it this way. So I, I tried to alliterate on this one. You have the condemnation, the coverage, the contrast, and the clarity, all right? So real alliterated there. Um, But the coverage of what? The coverage of the forgiveness that God gives. What is the coverage? I mean, what does it actually accomplish? How far does forgiveness go? How much does his blood apply? And I mean, when it comes down to it, does, uh, does, does the forgiveness I received when I asked Christ to be my Savior, did it, did it deal with my past, present, and future? Or did it just deal with a few things I was already guilty of right now? So what, what's the coverage of this forgiveness? Well, we can also look at the coverage of the guilt. That's what Paul does. He looks at the coverage of, of the condemnation, but then also the coverage of hope. And, uh, and, and a verse number 15 and 16, it says this, but not, and it almost sounds confusing. He says, but not as the offense 
so also is the free gift. For if there, through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. What, what is he talking about here? Well, I'm going to give you a couple of statements from Matthew Henry. I think it just very well put that will probably give a, a, a clarity and idea. But let me say the first thing is if guilt and wrath are imputed, which they are, man is born guilty and therefore deserving of the wrath of God then if they are imputed and they are mentioned and they are clarified by God that, that it exists, then much more shall grace and love be applied. That's what he's dealing with. Uh, Matthew Henry says this, for it, be, uh, uh, for, for it is agreeable to the idea we have of the divine goodness, the goodness of God, to suppose that he should be more ready to save upon an imputed righteousness than to condemn upon an imputed guilt. In other words, it's not a bad thing to understand and what we are trusting in and holding to that, that the God we serve is not a God looking for ways to destroy man. He's a God looking for the way to save man from that which is destroying him. And if he is a God that is seeking to save that which was lost, then he is more apt to want to forgive, as he put it here, uh, save upon an imputed righteousness than to enjoy condemning upon an imputed guilt. In other words, let's take you to another passage. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So, his desire leans heavily more towards wanting to forgive because of imputed righteousness on my account than desiring to condemn and, and have put wrath because of the guilt I was born into. So God desires for man to accept the gift. God desires to look and say, forgiven, I find your name. In the Lamb's book of life. Come on in. To the joy of the Lord. Much rather than having to say. Depart from me. I know you not. It does not give. I don't believe. A good and holy and righteous and pure God. Any enjoyment. To cast people from his presence. When he longs to invite them in by seeing the forgiveness applied, the blood applied to their life through Christ. But then also, not only if guilt and wrath are imputed, much more would grace and, wrath and love be placed as an option of, of replacement over guilt and wrath. But also this, one offense is all it took to bring condemnation over all men. But you and I are not guilty of just one offense. Think about it. 
You don't need to share with anybody, but just think about all the things that you know when it comes to sin, any measure of sin that we consider, you know, great or not so bad. Any measure of sin that you consider, just call it what it is, sin. Now, with the entire list that more than likely just one of us, this building would not be big enough to contain all the scrolls that would write down all of our offenses. So you consider all of those offenses, it only took one to make us all guilty of sin. But when Christ died on the cross and when an individual receives the free gift of salvation, it's not a free gift unto just, well, you've got one forgiven. Now, by the way, um, this leans towards the Catholic Church belief. The idea that you have to try to repent of every single sin that you have done or do or in the moment. Now, we understand when we do wrong, we need to get right with the Father. If we're a child of God, you need to make sure that there's nothing between you and your Father, you and the Savior. But the Catholic Church leans towards the idea that you need to be absolved, and so therefore you need to come to the confessional, to the father, person, priest, and you need to regularly confess every sin you can possibly think of. Don't miss one because you now need to do a penance to have those things forgiven. You need to say so many Hail Marys. You need to, you need to, you need to you know, burn so many candles. You got to do this and do that, and you're earning your penance, but you got to make sure that you clarify and you declare all the sins that you're looking to seek penance for. Well, I'm sorry. If I had to remember every single thing I ever did to ask God forgiveness of or every single time I do it, I'm in trouble. But what Paul's dealing with is here, he's trying to to deal with the fact that it only took one for all men to be declared guilty and worthy of God's wrath. And yet the forgiveness that comes by one Whereas by one sin entered, by one it's dealt with. That's my paraphrase. But he's, he's saying here the offense was by one, but yet it's not the same as the offense, not so as it was by, by one that sinned, so is the gift. So it's not the same with the gift of God as it was in the initial act that brought about sin upon all men. There's a difference here. There's a contrast in the parallel. Though they, the, the two roads kind of run side by side, it is Adam and Christ and, and those two roads, but they run in opposite directions. There is a contrast. It only took one to condemn all, but by the way, it only takes one in Christ to, to bring about forgiveness for all, but it's not just the forgiveness of one thing. It's not just the forgiveness of one little area and you gotta make sure you catch this one and now you gotta catch this one and now you gotta catch this one and now you gotta make sure you don't forget that one and you need to get, make sure you, you confess every sin every single day before you go to bed at night. That's not the way it works, though I do believe we should make sure that I am clear between me and my father. I don't want to break that fellowship because of something wrong in my heart. So therefore, Paul is saying here, and let me me read how Matthew Henry put it. He said, the stream of grace and righteousness is deeper and broader than the stream of guilt. 
For this righteousness does not only take away the guilt of that one offense, but of many other offenses, even all. Rolled away, rolled away, rolled away. Every burden of my heart rolled away. Every sin had to go. Neat the crimson flow. Hallelujah, rolled away, rolled away. Y'all know that old song, but that's what it's dealing with. It wasn't just one that was taken care of. It only took one to make me guilty. But God knows all and covers all with the blood of Christ. So Paul is dealing with that. The, how, how far does the blood cover? Further than guilt and wrath could possibly go. And then 17 and nine through 19 deals with the contrast. This is that main, main contrast here. And basically it is by one comes guilt, by one comes life. By one Adam, all were made sinners. By one Christ, many are made righteous. Now, it, you'll find it's interesting. It deals with all being made sinners, but it doesn't say all are made righteous. And the reason it says that is because it is in man's responsibility to accept the gift. You were born guilty. You and I were born with the guilt and wrath of God being deserving on our lives because of sin. But the only way that the forgiveness or the being made righteous in God's eyes comes about is not because, Christ, well, Christ died for me, I'm already righteous. No, he died for you so you could be. But the could be only turns to a is or I are be, okay? Arby's, oh, Grace, I'm not going to start thinking of food. But the only time you go from what could be to the reality of what is, is by accepting the offer. Man has to, through repentance, turn to Christ and accept him and him alone. It is not a little bit of Christ, a little bit of me. A little bit of his way, a little bit of mine. A little bit of, uh, a little bit of uh, his plan, a little bit of mine mixed in. That's not how it goes. It's all of Christ. It's repenting from, from me, from my way, from everything I think, and it's saying, Lord, it's all on you. It's all about him. Therefore, I must turn from my way, and I must take his alone, which is receiving Christ as my Savior. That is the only way that the offense and the wrath imputed gets dealt with eternally. But it is a contrast. Verse 17 and 19, I'm going to finish up very quickly. Verse 17 says, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more, than which, uh, they, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, and verse 19 really is the clearest explanation of those two verses that we just read. Verse 19 says, For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, Many were made sinners. 
so by the obedience of one, Christ, shall many be made righteous. Bible says in verse number 12, all have sinned. Verse number 19, many shall be made righteous. The difference between all and many is a willingness to turn to Christ and repent. It's a choice. I can still do it my way and figure out how it ends and see what happens. Or I can choose what God has laid out through Christ and Christ alone, which means I have to push myself aside and take him alone. So that's 18 and 19, the contrast. Adam brought the guilt. Christ brings hope of forgiveness and righteousness imputed to our account. By the way, sin has already been imputed. The guilt of sin has already been imputed. The imputed righteousness swallows it up. So where God would once see the imputed guilt of sin, for the child of God who's received Christ, he now sees a new covering of his righteousness placed on the account of that individual. Sin, the guilt of sin, the, uh, the deserving of wrath is removed by the covering of Christ's blood. Then, lastly, there's a clarity that's presented in verse number 20 and 21. He deals with the law real quick, and this would take us back up to verse number 13. It says, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. So why was it that the law was given? Sin was already in the world, and death was reigning because of it. Men were still dying. The, the, the curse on mankind because of sin was already being lived out. Men were getting sick. Men were dying. Evil was already penetrating into the hearts and lives and actions of men. And if you, you can name it, listen, if before Moses and before all that took place, you have Sodom and Gomorrah. Before the law, you had the flood. Before the law, you have Sodom and Gomorrah. Before the law, you have all these wicked things of a man's imagination taking place. So is sin rampant? Yes. Is judgment also seen throughout that before law? Yes. So why was the law given? Because the law, in verse number 20, it lays out was given for clarity. It was given to magnify man's problem. And so verse number 13 basically said the law, before the law, sin already existed. But it, it wasn't really magnified in some ways, though it was preached against. I believe, I believe Noah preached uh, righteousness. He's a preacher of righteousness, the Bible says. And, and, and I, I believe that there, uh, there were many that preached, many that taught. I think Adam himself probably had plenty to say in his near thousand years of living. I believe he had a good bit to say about uh, the state of man from where they originally started. Because he was there, don't forget. He knew what it was. The only one that's ever known what it was to live in a perfect world in comparison to a sin-cursed world. Adam. 
and Eve. But uh, here they are. Now, verse number 20 brings about the reason for the law. And we're going to close out with these two verses. It says, moreover, the law entered. Why? Why did the law enter? That the offense might abound. Well, that, that kind of sounds like the law entered so that sin could actually run rampant. <laughs> no, the abounding here, the law entered so that the offense would be magnified beyond the ability to reject it and say it doesn't exist. The law entered, God gave the law, God gave the commandments, and God gave the directions to the children of Israel through Moses. Why did he give the law? So that he would go ahead and just put a magnifying glass on the problem and man can't deny it. The law entered that the offense might abound, but where, here you go, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. God did not give the law just so man would look and say, oh my goodness, there's no hope. Let's just do it whatever we want to. God doesn't care. No, no, no. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. You understand, with all the law that was given to the children of Israel and all the you, thou shalt nots, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And by the way, there's still a whole bunch of thou shalt nots we ought to be observing. But with all the thou shalt nots, God gave them clear directions of what they should do in order to look forward to what he had planned so that from year to year, knowing that man would fail because the law just proved how wicked man was. Man could not keep it all if he tried. And so therefore the law was given to magnify the problem man has. And man is going to fail of the commandments of God. But God gave other instructions throughout the year, but especially once a year, that there was a lamb to be taken and to be slain. And the blood was to be taken once a year by the high priest into the Holy of Holies, and that blood was to be sprinkled and placed upon the mercy seat of God. That by God's grace, in seeing the obedience of following through with that, though they were guilty and deserving of all the wrath God could give, they knew what was right and they fell day in and day out. And yet, when that blood was applied to the mercy seat, it did not wash away their sins, but their obedience to follow his directions allowed their guilt to be pushed off one more year. Obedience to God's plan pushed it off. The blood of a lamb, simple lamb, could not be an eternal sacrifice for man but it could appease the wrath of God and it could show some obedience to God. And through that being put off year after year, year after year, one day there would come the perfect spotless lamb of God that God himself would provide and that lamb would be the final sacrifice for all eternity that would settle the blood upon the mercy seat and the eternal opportunity for where sin did abound, grace could much more abound.
And when Christ died on the cross, I believe his blood placed upon that mercy seat. And I believe the mercy of God then ignited the ability of the grace of God to abound beyond sin. And that man in God's grace and through God's grace, man's faith in him could open the door for the grace of God to apply imputed righteousness and forgiveness that is undeserved. It goes on in verse number 21. We'll close with this. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. The law magnifies and clarifies the issue of mankind. Sin reigns unto death, but grace, the grace of God, unto life by Jesus Christ. You really can't get much more clear than what Paul is getting in Romans, and we've only gone through five chapters. It's pretty interesting when you start breaking it down. You see just how specific Paul was being in the fact that his All of the grace of God because he was willing to show mercy and through obedience and faith in him, his mercy provides his grace which gives righteousness and forgiveness and then we get to enjoy through that faith we've we've placed in him, we get to enjoy peace, we get to enjoy hope, we get to have joy, the joy of the Lord, all these things not by works but by Christ and faith in him. So that's chapter five. We'll pick up chapter six uh, on the next go around. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.